Well, now if you'd turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 4, Psalm 4 this morning. And hear God's Word. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And now let's go to him in prayer. Father, we ask that you would Open our eyes to this word this morning. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Empower me by your spirit to preach with clarity. And may this word, through your spirit, change us on the spot and strengthen us. Lord, do this work for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's probably a familiar prayer for most of us. Maybe not the happiest prayer to pray every single night, um, thinking nightly about death, but it is one that most of us know to some degree. And it is a, it's a fitting evening prayer, a committal to the Lord's providential care. And actually, as I look this up, there are multiple versions to this prayer, multiple changes to the verses. And actually, this is one that I preferred. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Guard me, Jesus, through the night and wake me with the morning light. It's a prayer of trust. It's a prayer that acknowledges that the Lord is sovereign, that he is in control, and that he watches over his children, and how much we need to be reminded of that sentiment and, and the whole sentiment of that prayer, much like last week in Psalm 62, this is an implicit call to trust in the Lord. And Psalm 4 is actually quite similar to it, but in it we see a, a bit more, some further aspects to calling upon the Lord and the results of that calling upon the Lord. And, and let me tell you this, it's not bad to hear this more than once. We need to hear this message over and over again to be reminded of the truth in the midst of life that can move pretty rapidly from feeling that all is well-ordered and good to one that is disheveled and completely jumbled up, where things are not exactly as you would hope they would be, where tragedy or pain or any kind of trouble can strike at any moment. Psalm 4, as we come to it, is a prayer for the night, 
Or actually, if you continued on to Psalm 5, Psalm 5 is a morning prayer. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. And there is a rhythm in the Psalter. There's a rhythm to this book. And, and this prayer is a prayer that's meant for instruction. It's meant for the church. David composes it for the choir master, for the chief musician to be sung in the gathered body of the people of God. Now, as we turn to this, look at this psalm, it's good to understand the nature of the psalms as a whole, at least a little bit. And I'm going to probably give tidbits week in and week out. But the psalms in general are poetry. I think we can all figure that part out. But there are different types within the, the broad category of poetry. And so there are some subcategories that I've found helpful over uh, the years in looking at the psalms. And the subcategories are psalms of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Okay, so the psalms of orientation are hymns. They're, they're songs of praise. Everything is going as it should be. And then you have the Psalms of disorientation, which you can figure that out. Things are not going well. It's a lament. And actually, a lament is the most prominent type of psalm in the entire book. It's called the book of praises, but the most prominent is a lament. And then comes the Psalms of reorientation. And the Psalms of reorientation are Thanksgiving Psalms. They're, they're Psalms of, uh, of, of um, where the, the author has come out of that lament or is extremely confident that they're about to come out of it. The rough times are over. The season of lament is done. And Psalm 4 fits mostly into that category of disorientation. But I will say that as you read and study through it, it has very strong hints of reorientation. There is great confidence in the psalm. It flows from chaos to trust to, to rest to praise, not, not the praise that we normally think, but actually the praise of the silence of sleep, the silence of rest. This is a prayer of petition. David is coming to the Lord in the thick of things, and he's asking God to work for his glory and for David's good, to work his purposes in the everyday of history. There is a clear belief by David that prayer works. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And folks, what we will see in this psalm is we're going to see this opening prayer, this opening call, David coming before the Lord, then there's going to be the content of the prayer, the plea, the plea, what he, he's asking for, and finally the result, which is peace. And in David praying, he shows much of his heart and his character. John Calvin wrote, by his praying, he testified that when utterly deprived of all earthly succor or comfort, there yet remained for him hope in God. That's where we go in prayer. We go to our true hope. So then this morning, as we have the privilege of hearing God's Word, my prayer is that you and I will, will see the sheer power of the goodness of God and His presence and care for His children, and that we will learn more and more to rest in His sovereign love for us. So verse 1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So when David is in distress, what does he do? He calls to the Lord. Psalm 16, verses 6 and 7, 
I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. In Psalm 4, we have to listen to how he addresses God. He says, O God of my righteousness. He's praying to the God who vindicates, to the God who is the upholder of justice. If you just moved your eyes down on your page in your Bible, or maybe the next page, Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6, he writes, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You see, it's clear what the character of God is. He delights in what is right and good and true and beautiful. He does not delight in deceit. And so David prays to God, appealing to that very character of God. And as he does, he uses language of intimacy, personal language, covenant language. He says, O God of my righteousness. It's not just this generic, O God of righteousness. But he is praying, O God of my righteousness. And this is the God who has already given David relief. When David was hard-pressed, when he was boxed in, the Lord widened his area. The Lord enlarged his spaces, gave him breathing room. Isn't it so common when distressed, when feeling under the pile it feels like the walls are closing in on you. You, you feel like you, you have no space, that maybe there's even labored breathing. And he believes, though, that because he has seen God work, that though he is confined now, that the Lord will lead him out to green pastures and still waters. He will lead him to wide spaces. He will enlarge his area. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, wrote, Thou hast formerly enlarged me when I was in distress, enlarged my heart in holy joy and comfort under my distress, enlarged my condition by bringing me out of my distresses. Therefore now, Lord, have mercy upon me and hear me. The experience we have had of God's goodness to us in enlarging us when we have been in distress is not only a great encouragement to our faith and hope for the future, but a good plea with God in prayer. Thou hast, wilt thou not? For thou art God and changes not. Thy work is perfect. So he's saying, because the Lord has, has enlarged my space before, pray, Lord, you've done it before. Do it again. Do your work, O God, of my righteousness. So da David boldly calls for the Lord to be gracious to him, to hear his prayer. If we look at Psalm 69, 16, David says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. You see, in these psalms and in these prayers, uh, David, though he speaks with force, he prays boldly, virtually commanding the Lord. His appeal is ultimately to the graciousness and mercy of God. He's appealing to God's character. He knows that his only hope is in the mercy of the Lord to turn to sinners. It is certainly not deserved, but it is most certainly welcomed when he does. And folks, as we come to him, 
And we sang earlier, come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come boldly because of Christ, because of the sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's go boldly to the Lord. He calls us to come boldly, to go to the throne of grace. Let us plead with Him like David did. So let's look at this plea, this appeal to God, this earnest asking. There's no bashfulness on David's part. He is not coming um, in, a, in a mousy manner, but he's coming boldly with confidence, with the confidence of the child of a king who can wake his father up at three in the morning for a glass of water. Because he knows that the king, though the king who's high and lofty, will answer his child because he loves him and because he's his. So as we look at this plea, one thing that I will say, it's not perfectly clear how to divide this text and to really determine how David, um, or really who David is addressing now, as I've studied this, though, and, and this is one of those things in the Psalms, I mentioned it last week, some of the vagueness in the Psalms of this is actually the beauty of it. It helps us apply it to ourselves. And so, I think, actually, David is addressing us all. He's addressing enemies, companions, and I think he's addressing himself, too. He's calling us away from falsehood and sin and worry into the solace of truth and worship and into the presence of the Lord. If we look at this, David is being accused. He's being falsely accused by some opponents, and this may well be the time of Absalom's um, kind of revolt against him, as we see actually in Psalm 3. Uh, many see Psalm 3 and 4 flowing right into each other and then into 5, but there's nothing that says it has to be Absalom. It could be a number of other occasions. David had many people falsely accuse him, and that false accusations apply to us as well, believers quite often feel those false accusations. So look at verses 2 and 3. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now David in this, I think he's pleading here not only with God, but he's actually pleading with those who are shaming and humiliating him as well those who are pursuing lies and vanity, he appeals to them, turn away from those untruths. And if you look at your text, I don't often mention it, and I don't read the word selah. The reason I don't is because no one really has any idea what it means, okay? It's just one of those words that's pretty untranslatable, but one of the leading ideas is that it's a pause. It's a musical pause, And that pause fits very well here as he appeals to them, stop doing this. Oh men, how long will you do this? Pause. Know that the Lord watches out for his people. They need to not respond right away, but they need to listen. 
Because that statement in verse 3 is beautiful. It's a reminder to those who know the Lord. It, it's, it's great encouragement, but it's also a reminder to those attacking. You're not ultimately going to win. Okay, the reason being is the Lord has set apart His people for Himself. The Lord will not forsake them. He will hear when one of His children calls to them. He cares for those who take refuge in Him. The Second Chronicles, uh, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless to Him. And I love that picture of the eyes of the Lord moving back and forth throughout the earth because He wants to support those whose heart is blameless toward Him. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote this in regard to this, His eyes run implying the celerity and swiftness of God in hastening relief to His people. His eyes run through the whole earth, implying the universality of help. There is not a saint in any dark corner of the world, under any straits or troubles, but God eyes him and will take singular care of him. God will always suit His care to His people's conditions, to which His imminent appearances for them in days of distress and trouble give signal testimony And listen to this, it is our work to cast care, it is God's work to take care. Let us not then, by soul-dividing thoughts, take the Lord's work out of His hands. What an encouragement. It is our work to cast our care on Him, it is His work to care for us. So let's not, by frittering all about, take away the work that the Lord loves to do for His children. Let us cast our care on Him. So let, us, let, let, let that sink in, folks, because there is happiness and comfort and confidence in those words for the child of God. He has set His children apart for His sake. He delights in them, Zephaniah three seventeen. And so David is telling believers, hey, don't you know how much God loves you? And he's telling those who are attacking them, don't you know how much He loves them? you might want to reconsider. Now, the situations the Lord may have for us in this life will certainly not always be what we would hope they would be. Sicknesses, pain, trials, difficulties. But we are called to trust that He is there for us, for those that are set apart for Himself, And listen, our Lord Jesus Christ was set apart. Set apart. And He serves as a great example to us. Uh, Look at 1 Peter 2, verses 19 to 24. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. And then it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body, on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And what I think so much of that is, is he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. When you're in trial, when you're in pain, when you're in difficulty, when people are after you, are you entrusting yourself to him who judges justly? Are you trying to be the judge yourself and vindicate your own name? Folks, these verses serve as encouragement to all believers. The Lord is for his children. David is calling us. uh, The Lord is calling us rest in his providential care. Cast our cares on him. Well, then we come to verses 4 and 5. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, verse 4 likely sounds familiar. Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And in some translations, you, you might see instead of be angry, the word tremble. And Paul quoted from the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, whereas the Hebrew text uses a word that can be translated as tremble or as be agitated, be angry. So it it comes out the same. But the point of this verse, verse, of verse 4, is this, don't sin. Don't sin. No matter the circumstance, no matter what's going on with you, don't sin. These verses call all who hear to stop and to ponder in their hearts, to search their heart and be silent, to to take a step back. Matthew Henry wrote, One good means of preventing sin and preserving a holy awe is to be frequent and serious in communing with our own hearts. Talk with your hearts. You have a great deal to say to them. They may be spoken with at any time. Let it not be unsaid. A thinking man is in a fair way to be a wise and a good man. Commune with your hearts. Examine them by serious self-reflection that you may acquaint yourselves with them and amend what is amiss in them. Employ them in solemn, pious meditations. Let your thoughts fasten upon that which is good and keep closely to it. Stop. Talk to your hearts. Commune with your hearts. This is advice we all need to take. I know I need to take it when those things that are irritating or that come at you, I just need to stop and talk to my heart and speak truth. But it's not just stop sinning, but we're actually to pursue what is right, to pursue righteousness, offer right sacrifices, right worship, the the proper and consistent use of God's means of grace. Now, I know turning your hearts to worship isn't always easy when you are facing pain and difficulty, when you're persecuted or wrongly accused. But folks, hear this that is when worship is most necessary. And I think it's also in those moments that you are likely going to become more aware that you are worshiping God for who He is. Your worship is is almost more pure because it's not because you have all these blessings, but because you know who He is and who He is for you in Christ. So turn and trust. Rest in Him. Turn away from your false and proud ways. Proverbs 3, 5, all the way through 8. We'll not just stop at 6 here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. 
fear the Lord and turn away from evil, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And it's also, folks, it is freeing to take the ultimate responsibility off of yourself and put it on the one who can handle it. We are not good gods. We are not good sovereigns. So take it off of yourself and give it to the Lord. The Lord gave us that example in His life and ministry on earth as He entrusted Himself to the one who judges justly. Well, now let's look down at verses 6 and 7. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Verse 6, I think it speaks to those who either waver in their trust or, uh, and are worried, or it speaks to those who are flat-out self-centered and simply asking, hey, what's in this for me, David? And I think it could be taken either way, and, and really both. The point, again, still stands. And I will say, I'm actually not a fan of where the ESV puts the quotation marks here. Now, the quotation marks are not in the original, so don't worry, we're not changing Scripture here. But I would put it after the word good, that it, the question is the first thing, is the who, um, where is it here? There are many who say, who will show us some good in that quotation? Because I believe that at that point in time, it's, it's this voice of the skeptic. Where is the good? What are you going to do for us? We've got nothing. It's that the, the, the one who really doesn't believe that there is good. It's the, the downtrodden, those who worry constantly, those who you could just call Eeyore, and they, you know what you're talking about. It's constantly this sad and depressed. What's going on? Where is it for me? Because I believe David is actually praying that second part of verse 6. He's praying a representative part of the Aaronic benediction in number 6. Number 6, 24 to 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. It's the blessing of the Lord, the blessing of His presence. That's the blessing that lasts. And that blessing is not a mere outward blessing, one of circumstances, circumstantial joy that we see maybe when there's an abundant harvest, when everything seems to be blessed. But it's the true and lasting, it's the inward joy of the heart. See, when a believer is in the pit in a horrible situation, the recipe is to pray to God that He would help, help us to see all the myriad blessings we have, that we go back to Ephesians 1 and we see that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that He would open our eyes to see that true blessing of His presence, that God is actually the best portion of the believer. And that as we think about heaven, that's what we think about most. It's not that Aunt Jenny's going to be there or Cousin Ed or whatever. It's that the Lord will be there. And we're going to be with Him forever in His glorious presence, unmediated, there and see Him. 
See, believers don't need a phenomenal harvest and a massive party in order to have joy. In fact, their joy is greater than those who seemingly have it all. It's a joy that lives even in the midst of difficulty and pain. And it's a, folks, it's a joy that's hard to cultivate in our hearts, but it's one that we want to pray over and over, Lord, let me see the joy of your presence. Not the joy of circumstances, but the joy of your presence. So here's the plea. Here's the call to his readers, and it's to all of us, the ones who are believing and maybe pursuing lies. He says, know that the Lord cares for his people, cares for his beloved. To the angry, don't sin. Turn to worship and trust the Lord, and to the worried and despairing, he says, see all that has been given in the Lord. See the beauty of his presence to bless and to care. There is nothing better than that. But there's still a little bit more in the psalm. What happens when this truth is put into the heart and it sits and it rests and it changes us? In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. What a prayer for the fearful, for the worried. But it's a prayer of confidence, isn't it? In peace, I will both lie down. See, because you can go lie down, but not lie down in peace. You can lie down and roll around for hours upon hours upon hours, fretting and worrying. But in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Why? Not because I took an Ambien, but because the Lord is my safety, and He makes me rest. Josh Ritano passed this story on to me of Robert Rayburn. Rayburn was the founding president of Covenant College, and he was a chaplain in both World War II and Korea. And so Rayburn tells this story of being called into the senior chaplain's office one day, and he the senior chaplain says, hey, Robert, uh, we've got some guys going behind enemy lines, and I don't have a chaplain to send with them. Will you go? Well, there was a slight problem with this, is Rayburn was not a trained paratrooper. In fact, he'd never jumped before. He'd never been behind enemy lines, and this was a voluntary thing coming from the senior chaplain. And he knew others could be asked, but Rayburn thought that, well, somebody's got to do this, and I actually believe that God can protect me. So he answered, I'll go. When do I train? And the senior chaplain answered, tomorrow, when you jump with the rest of them behind enemy lines. So the next day, he's on the plane. He sees the fear in the eye of these soldiers, in the eyes of men who have actually had training and likely many of them seen combat. And Rayburn begins to shake visibly at this thought. And so he did the only thing he could. He, he prayed. He called to mind from, from, uh, from Scripture this passage, I will not fear, for thou art with me. And then he fell asleep. He fell asleep on the plane. He actually had to be woken up to make the jump. And he tells the story, he says, for months after that, he was given opportunities to share the gospel with so many people because they came to him, because he'd garnered this reputation as the dude that fell asleep on his first jump. And they literally wanted to know, 
how can I have peace like he did? I've never fallen asleep before a jump before. I've been scared, you know, crazy out of it. And this guy on his first jump falls asleep. That's the power of the Lord in our lives and the power of knowing truth. This is what comes with believing what David says, what Scripture says. It comes with unloading your burdens, your chaos, your anxiety, your circumstances. It doesn't mean you have to pray for hours upon hours upon hours. You would trust yourself. I'll not fear, for you are with me. Your presence is upon me. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. You can sleep in peace. And that is actually movement in this psalm from chaos to praise. That is as much praise, I would venture to, to argue with many of you, that the praise of sleep is as much as singing sometimes because it's, the same, it's calling, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. You have peace because you know that the one who watches you never sleeps and he never slumbers. Well, there is one last thing. This psalm points us to more than just trust in the Lord. Seeing His faithfulness in our lives and the peace we can have, and, and that can serve as a witness to the truth of the gospel with others. But it also points to Christ. He experienced massive distress in His life, even to the point of death, and a, and a very brutal death at that. But He was raised to new life in resurrection power. And glory. Men denied him. They falsely accused him. Yet he prayed because he knew the Father would hear his prayers. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And because of that, because of what he has done, we truly have life. We have hope. We can also rest in peace. He went through all of that for us. Folks, God will hold his people. He set apart the godly for himself. We we have a tremendous blessing and we have tremendous peace to be able to sleep soundly because our hearts are at rest in the perfectly capable hands of the Lord who loves his children deeply and whose eyes run to and fro throughout the earth to strongly support those whose heart is his. Let's pray. Father, your word is good, and it is of such great encouragement. Do work in our hearts and our minds. Teach us these truths. May, may they bore deep into our souls that we would rest in you, that we would trust in you, that we would know the peace of sleep because our hearts are no longer restless, but at rest in the one who holds us fast all the days of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.